This show contains movie spoilers and swearing. Have you radioed for help? Radios don't work underwater, but our course has been tracked on radar and they know exactly where we went down. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Bite Size Cinema. I'm your host RJ McCready and oh boy have I got a special one for you today. Um, I've got a uh, very special guest coming onto the show, it's uh, Von Babison, um, who's a special effects crew, uh, who's been involved in films in the 70s and the 80s, some of the films that um, I grew up with, some films that terrified me including Jaws 2, a film that I... I've got a passion for today with The Thing, um, a film that scared me from flying, which is Airport 77, and some iconic TV shows such as The Knight Rider, Battlestar Galactica, and Buck Rogers, which I've got a, an absolute love for even today, which have become just iconic TV shows. So, Von, welcome to the show. Welcome to Bite Size Cinema. Well, thank you very much, RJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Not Kurt Russell. Sorry, I'm not Kurt Russell. <laughs> no, well, that's okay. I, I can deal with that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for coming on to the show today, Von. Now, as I as I just mentioned, um, you've been involved in some very iconic movies and TV shows. Um, how did this all come about for you? Where did this all start? Well, uh, I always had a a passion for music and film hmm. since uh, my father was a great jazz bassist and my grandfather was an ACE film editor for Universal for 40 years and has credits on 130 films. Wow. 
So as a kid growing up, I would hear these nightmare stories of continuity errors and directorial shortfalls from my grandfather. Wow. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was learning. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> and his, his language was rather salty, so we would get sent out of the room sometimes. But right. still, I got the gist of his stories. And it, it really made me curious about the whole making of films. Mm. So... Um, uh, when I turned 21, I was kind of looking for a direction in my life and got wind that Universal was busier than it ever had been. They they didn't have enough people on the union books. So a friend told me that I should go right on the lot, just walk on the lot, go shake hands with the guy that you want to be hired by. Wow. So I did that. I know I had, I, I actually got the gumption to walk right by the guards <laughs> and walk right on the lot. And I went to the mill and I shook hands with John Bensberg and I was hired the next day. Wow. That, that, uh, already, Vaughn, that's, that's an amazing yeah. story because I've heard people say I've literally turned up at Hollywood with about 10 bucks in my you know, pocket and got hired and boom, there you go. You know, <laughs> this, this is now a, you know, a true story, which you're telling us now. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> you know, and, and like I said, you know, they needed people so bad. Mm. Um, I was was known as a 30-day wonder, and those in the union understand what I mean. Um, I worked my first 30 consecutive days, and I earned my number one card in the union. Instead of having to go through the traditional three-card, two-card, one-card, I was immediately top seniority. <laughs> wow. And that did not make, make the old dudes very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> But that's too bad because I was a hard worker. I worked my butt off and um, I earned uh, some of the the greatest jobs on the lot for a craft service person. Um, so what time period was this, Vaughn? When did you go to finish? What, what year was it? Uh, summer of 76 is when I was originally hired. Oh, right. Okay. So that would have been just after the kind of boom of the first Hollywood blockbuster, obviously being Jaws, I'd imagine. You know, yes, that probably made no, things go um, through the world. Yeah, I, I, after my little rich man, poor man thing, which was just a couple of weeks, Yeah. Um, I, I ended up being sent to Stage 27, which ironically was also the home of the compound for the thing back in, in 1981. Yeah. But in 76, I went to assist the effects crew of Airport 77. Wow. I was sent the very first day of shooting, and I walked on the set, Here's this freaking 30-foot-long airplane fuselage on a, on a mounted gimbal in 20 feet of water. Yeah, yeah. That's... <laughs> and, and I knew I'd found a home, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I was so happy. I couldn't believe it. And the boss of Airport 77 was a gentleman by the name of Frank Brendel. Right. And he had just won the very first Special Effects Academy Award for Earthquake. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that movie. Yeah, yeah you see. So, and, and obviously, you know, Jaws 1 came out in 75. I was still in college. Right. But by 77, um, you know, right after my stint of five months on Airport 77, uh, I went on to the crew of Jaws 2 and, and worked for a year and a half on that baby. So, so uh, with Airport 77, that's a film I'm very fond of. It's one of the films I watched um, when I was a kid. I think it was like a Saturday night um matinee that used to come on loved it because it had all the elements of adventure you know in a plane going into the water uh, of course you had christopher lee in that movie as well 
with uh, yeah. Jack Jack Lemon, which I thought played a very strong leading man in that movie. He was very, you know, the sort of, you know, he, he he took it by the horns and dealt with it. You know, he's a really strong character in that movie. Um, that did really you have, had an incredible cast in that? Film. Yeah, that's right. I, I think even Olivia um, Havilland and Joseph Cotton and George Kennedy and yeah. Jimmy Stewart. You know, <laughs> that's it. Iconic, <laughs> amazing. It was like. I was a kid in a candy store. Oh my I, God, look at all these people. This, <laughs> this, this, this is the thing, Von. You know, you're, you're telling me this story, you know, because, you know, I, I've, I've covered the, the, the film on my show as a sort of short bite sized episode. And when I rewatched it, I thought, oh my God, Buck Rogers even turns up in it as well, Jill yeah. Gerard. You know, I thought, yeah. wow. You know, it's yeah. like, it's, like you say, it's just, it's almost like, as you're telling me, you know, Hollywood being a busy time, it's almost like, you know, it's like, hey, who wants to be in a movie? I'll just get Buck Rogers on this film as well, you know, or something, you know. <laughs> it's well, like... A lot of those young up-and-coming actors were under contract to uni, so they would kind of put them wherever they wanted them. Hmm. I think Monty Markham was one of those guys, and because he was on the cast also. Yeah. Gil Gerard. Um, uh, Robert Foster. There's uh, so many people. In that movie, oh my god, Robert Foster. Incredible. Yeah, he's another great actor. I think he, he did a great job in was it, uh, The Black Hole, wasn't it? I think he was in this, yeah, so, but, um, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, like I say, that's um, what a way to start your career with a you know, a movie like that, and then to go on to Jaws 2. I mean. What a movie, you know, it's like another film that scared the hell out of me as a kid and it still does today, you know. So. Yeah, it was, you know, I was uh, working on 27, like I said, stage 27. Yeah. It was kind of down in the pit. It was right at the entrance of where the Technicolor building was on the uni lot. And right directly across the way from stage 27 was an area they called prefab, hmm. which was short for prefabrication. And that's where they built the platform and all the Jaws 2 sharks in that area. Right. So I got to know those guys because they saw me working my butt off for Airport 77. And they said, hey, we got to get that guy on our crew. Wow. So literally the day I was done wrapping out uh, Airport 77, I was hired on under the crew of Jaws 2 and uh, worked for six months on the lot, helping load the trucks and watched them pull away to Martha's Vineyard and I didn't go with them. It was like, you know, everything is run by union rules, of course. So up in Martha's Vineyard, they weren't required to have a representative of every union on right. the, on the uh, crew. So they went without me. But when they went to Florida and the bar beach, there are different union rules down there. And in order to hire locals, you had to have at least one representative of that particular union. Right. So believe it or not, <laughs> at three o'clock in the afternoon, while I'm like sweeping the floor in the shop, <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Bensberg comes up and says, Vaughn, do you want to go to Florida? And I said, do I have a day to think about it? And he said, no. And I said, okay, I'll go. So literally eight hours after I punched out, they sent a limousine to Pacoima, where I lived at the time. Wow. <laughs> Picked me up at 11.30 at night and drove me to the airport and flew me out to Florida. I think I was on the clock for about 17 straight hours that day. <laughs> and I arrived on on set and started working and worked for seven months. 
on, on Jaws 2 out there. Oh, I did want to mention also one of the prettiest stunt ladies, uh, Jean Coulter. Yeah. Uh, he was in the crew or in, in the cast of Airport 77. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know her at the time, but she is the woman who pours the gasoline on the shark's face and blows oh, the water. Right. That's okay. the same woman, Jean Coulter. She's she's online here. She's on in Facebook and stuff. She's oh, right. a really beautiful lady. Yeah, it's a, a horrific scene. Uh, I was going to say, you know, with Jaws 2, it's... Uh, am I right in saying that they used bits of um, or ideas that they were going to use for the first movie in this film? So uh, the um, shark attacks, that they had some ideas to use for the first Jaws movie, but they didn't get it all in, so they used it for number two. Am I right in saying that? Or? Definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything was refined. Well, you can see that the shark was much different. Yes. The, the yeah, yeah. I've, I've posted pictures of the skeletal structure of Jaws 2 Shark, and it really was much more advanced than the first one. Wow. Um, uh, even though it had the infamous underbite, underbite or overbite? Underbite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everybody complains about that. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um... <laughs> So, so they filmed they filmed it in Florida, did they? Part two, George yeah, two, most right? of it, right? They they had a short, like I said, a short stint in Martha's Vineyard to do like the exteriors around the town and everything. Oh, but I see. Yeah, water, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, right. That's when we went down, and we had a variety of places in Florida: Bayou Chico, and we had a place in Pensacola, and of course, Navarre Beach was our home base. That was where the Holiday Inn was located, and most of us just lived in the Holiday Inn. And uh, we had built our a spe special effects shop on one of the parking lots in the Holiday Inn. So we had like a bunch of different uh, um, shell uh, structures that were temporary, but they were built on, and that's where the picture of the Jaws 2 shark that I have as well. Yeah, I guess so. You sent that to me. Yeah, I saw that. Is that the one where, where the yeah. shark's getting burnt up by the cable? And you've got all the... Well, was, that's, oh, no. yeah, that was the fire. That's the actual death scene. But I do have another picture where it was before filming even took place, so he's pristine. He, had, he doesn't have the burn yet. Oh, he has the that's right. Job. <laughs> That's right. The photo oh. you sent me, that's it. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's a great photo. Actually, the one I'm using for the show, that one. Yeah. Oh, great. Cool. Um, so, you're, so you're 20, so you're 22 years old at this time in Hollywood. Is that right? You know, working on these right. movies, 1977. So um, I'm still really interested with Jaws 2 here. Sure. Being that age in, in Hollywood at that time, 1975, Jaws comes out big blockbuster it just goes boom it must have been something for you to be thinking i'm working on the sequel to this film I mean, do you know what i mean i'm just thinking you know the age that you are hollywood everything that's going on you know getting driven to hot florida it must have been a part of your life where you're thinking you know what this is this is pretty good you know <laughs> i'm figuring yes, sir. you know yeah because yeah. well you know again with the popularity of the first one yeah uh, when we went to pensacola we were literally, I mean, no matter how, who you were on the crew, you were a star. People yeah. knew crew people wherever you went in the town. People knew. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was, oh, it was wow. very interesting. You know, special effects is a lot like that, too. Um, 
uh, it, do you know the days when when you have a shooting schedule and you know that the big name stars are going to be there yeah a lot of times you'll have uh the producer's family shows up because they want to see the star you know mm -hmm. and and i'll tell you special effects like when we blow up a house <laughs> or or we do something a major special effect we had the families of all the directors and producers and everybody would show up because they wanted to see the explosion you know yeah. oh yeah of course yeah sure <laughs> yeah everybody loves a fire <laughs> everybody loves an explosion or fire like that that's it yeah it's, 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 it's yeah it's like fireworks and displays and things like that um yeah, did you actually get to meet any of the cast did you actually get to meet roy schneider or anybody like that oh yeah sure sure i met with roy and i, I mean we weren't like buddies or anything i no. was pretty much the local man on the totem pole <laughs> but yeah I, I knew a couple of the kids um cindy grover uh, uh gigi vorgon a couple of the you know the younger kids that were a little more they were new to hollywood too you know so yes um, yeah um, not, not to jump the shark so to speak but uh when i first worked when i worked on la bamba um uh it was uh, um, Blue Diamond Phillips' first movie, and oh, he couldn't have been more wonderful and more accommodating. You know, he wasn't a star yet, and he really was just so open, and we really got hit hit it off very well. But um, you know, again, and the, the more traditional stars, they were kind of more aloof, and it was harder to be yeah. close with. Um, you know, there there were an occasional. Like, I always say the the nicest star i ever worked for was james garner and when i got a chance to work a little bit on the rockford files he was oh just, well, okay yeah just a sweetheart oh my god what a guy oh that's good to hear it's great to hear when you hear that you know the, the stars are you know pleasant off screen um okay. i'd imagine that with roy schneider as well is, is he a, is he a nice guy or just going back he to was roy. a little aloof um, I, from what I understood uh, in the scuttlebutt of the story of Jaws 2, that Roy really wasn't happy to be there. He didn't really want to do the film, from what oh, I understood. Okay. And I think Universal forced him to do it in a, in a respect, um, contractually. So uh, he didn't, you know, when you don't really want to be there kind of thing, although he still turned in a wonderful performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was still there was still tension and of course there was the uh john hancock and Jeanneau schwartz problem that uh by the time i got to florida uh Jeanneau was the director so i really didn't even get any contact with hancock at all so i'm not sure what happened there but you could tell that there was discourse in the upper echelon <laughs> shall we say yeah it's strange isn't it because i you know when i mean a lot of the fans of jaws or when i think of roy schneider i think of jaws and he's you know role was chief brody you know as a hero character the type of strong silent type guy he kind of says say when he needs to um sure. but he's always certainly been a big part of my life growing up you know every time i go down to the beach <laughs> i think <laughs> I, I might just see roy on a boat sinking, you know, with a, with a gun in his hand or something, trying to shoot a shark, you know. This is what these films have done to me, you know, in my life. <laughs> Which I'm sure, as for many other people, you know, fans out there, you know, they, they have had an impact, you know. Uh, so so these films that you've been working on, Vaughn, they've had a, not only are they good films, but they're, 
um, impactful films um, yes. and the TV shows as well. So, you know, sort of, so thanks for being a part of this, you know, thanks for producing yeah. this stuff for us, you know, because it's, it's, it's still, yeah. I, um, I know other people will be listening to the show, will be thinking the same thing, you know, this, it's all like retrospective stuff now we look back on and people think of these films, you know, and I said to my, I, um, so I just said to my co, my regular co-host Dan Bone, who joins me. I said to him on a previous episode. I said I was pretty much scared as a kid in the eighties because you can get on a plane, you can go in the water, you know, you had earthquakes <laughs> and stuff. You know, it's just like you can do anything. <laughs> Can't even go into a tall building. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Yeah, this is it. You know, it's 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 something we bring Tower up quite a bit. That's right. Yeah, Tower Inferno. That's right. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so after Jaws T Von, what's the next adventure after that for you? Well, you know, that's I kinda went back into the shop for a while. Mm. Um I was very lucky I was never laid off. Um, you know, I, I had mentioned the fact that I was this craft service person. Uh there was a, a small group of craft service people that specifically assisted special effects crews. And there was a gentleman by the name of Joseph Pomowski, who was my direct boss in yeah. the mill in the effects shop. And he had this crew and I was kind of his top guy. Right. Um, I, you know, modestly, I, I just worked my ass off. I, you know, I saw some of the old guys who had protected uh, one cards and stuff that they, they would ask guys like me, why are you working so hard? Why, why are you working so fast? You're just going to have to do something else after you're done with this, you know, but I was the kind of guy who was a go getter and I just worked my butt off. And yeah. because of it, they protected me. Um, I, you know, I went into the shop. I, I was working in the steel shop most of the time and that's where all the welding is done and all the work on cars. So that's, uh, you know, when I got hooked up with Rockford Files and did some work on Battlestar, worked on some of the spaceships for Buck Rogers. Wow. And, uh, uh, you know, that that kind of stuff. It was mill work. Um, but then, like, I remember one night, all night on the set of Buck Rogers up in the back lot, and we were doing smoke in a graveyard scene, which turns out to be actually the very first episode of Buck Rogers. You'll see you'll see him running through this graveyard and it's actually at the dump in the <laughs> in the universal back lot <laughs> yeah oh is it right okay yeah i, I actually it, remember it, that scene <laughs> yeah you can yeah sure it was a, a long scene that we we had many setups we worked a, a good 12 14 hours that night isn't that it i think that's when he comes across the underground dwelling people is it and when he's in the old town of chicago or something like that i think um, yeah, like yeah, that. that was the one. Well, it was the very first one, the Awakenings, where yeah, he that's actually, it, yeah. you know, they discover him, and and he's carrying Tweaky around. <laughs> nah, that's right, yeah, bitty, 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 bitty. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and as a matter of fact, I know that guy, Felix Silla. He's he's oh, right. some boy. He's uh, he did the uh, uh, cousin It on the Adams Family. Oh wow. Around, boy. You know what, Von? I'm still, I'm still blown away by the fact that you did a little bit of welding on one of the uh, spaceships for Buck Rogers. I'm sorry, but I just like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, it was—I can't remember which one it was. It was the bad guy's ship. Oh um, yeah. But, but the way they designed it was every corner 
was an angle cut. It was all constructed of triangles. Mm -hmm. And and for some reason, it was, oh my God, it was a nightmare trying to put together the instrument panel inside the mock-up because everything had to be cut angle cut it, it was there was not a square corner on the entire ship <laughs> and they insisted on that because that was what made it so unique oh, and of wow. course you never even knew that or ever saw it on film <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it but yeah all, you, all the work that goes into it off off screen that you can see um so well, you know when that you know talking about the spaceships on these tv shows did they ever sort of reuse them again for anything else or did they just take them apart or is, are they still kicking around somewhere in Hollywood, these, this crop? Well, you know, I would probably think that maybe the prop masters hmm. who worked on the shows have them. Um, that's the way those kind of things all disappeared. You know, the directors or people would come through and take what they wanted kind of as their mementos of whatever it was. Uh, you know, I know that the Jaws sharks were really treated terribly. They just kind of went into the back lot and rotted away. Oh, no. All right. Uh, oh, that's a shame. You know, uh, I know I've seen pictures on this uh, on FB that, that show Tina's Joy, the boat that, you know, the, the Tina is screamed shark on. That, oh, that yeah. Sitting in the back lot all rotting. And <laughs> oh, man. You know, I know. It's funny because you see these houses that collect memorabilia for movies and they're just crazy for anything they can get their hands on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. You know, to see how a lot of these these were treated <laughs> or just dumped somewhere because they'll never be used again. <laughs> Man, if only they knew today, you know, they'd be worth a, a buck or two now, wouldn't they? Stuff like that, you oh, know, just yeah, have no, things. <laughs> oh. And uh, yeah, that Tina's Joy scene, just going back to Jaws 2, was cinema trauma for me there with that kid trying to get away from the shark. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh man. I know, that was you a know, brutal one. It, it's, it, it's got some real brutal scenes in it, Jaws 2, you know, especially with the guy with the helicopter and the jaw, you know, the shark comes jumping out. I think there's a. There's probably a lot more of the shark that's seen in number two as like number one's probably got yeah. more suspense and stuff like that, but Definitely. it really goes for it. Um, so going back to, you mentioned uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, did you do a little yes. bit of welding on a colonial viper by any chance? I'm <laughs> 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 just saying, you know. Well, I, I wasn't actually a welder, but uh, All right. I, at I'm, I was working, like I said, on the instrument panels. And oh, right. Okay, the actual yeah. pieces that were going into the structure of the draconian, what was it called? Oh, God. I can't remember. Anyway, the draconian fighters. You can see them if you see an old episode of Buck Rogers and you see the draconian fighters, you can see how angular and triangular they are. Yeah, that's They're it. Yeah. Very sharp, yeah, yeah. pointy. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I also did uh, uh, Cylon uniforms you know those yes those were uh remember the vacuum forms we had as a kid uh, uh you would put in a sheet of plastic and the light bulb would would heat the plastic up oh yeah and then you'd lower the plastic down and it would the vacuum would suck it over uh some kind of a shape yeah and it would create that shape okay well that's what we made the cylon uniforms out of this huge gigantic vacuum form machine Wow. And they had all the helmets, the half helmets and everything. And we put in these gigantic sheets of, of plastic 
and and uh, they'd be covered with the the mylar, you know, the reflective mylar covering, so they'd be all shiny, right. silver. And sure enough, you know, heat up the plastic, suck them down, and then trim them, and that would that's how we built all those Cylon creatures. So, am I right in saying that you know, working on you know these models and craft and Cylons and everything, was it a little bit of a you know, you turn up in a workshop and think, we've got to make this today, so we're kind of try and think about a way to do it, kind of make it up as we go along. Was it a little bit like that, you know, back in that time? I was, you know, I was well, using you know, so. it. It's so unique. Everything you do is so unique that the minute you find the best way to accomplish what it is you're doing, you'll never do it again. All right, okay. <laughs> you know? So, like, I worked on The, the Incredible Shrinking Woman. Yeah, uh, was another one, and and you know, over a year on that, and we were making giant Chinese food and sculpting fortune cookies out of <laughs> foam, you know, a giant champagne bottle, all these different things. And again, we'd never make giant Chinese food again in our lives. There's no, no. You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you just don't have that as a regular everyday yeah. need. <laughs> so. Uh, Always on your toes, and and the more diverse you could be, the better special effects man you would be. Whatever accomplished your goal, whatever looked like what you needed it to look like, mm. is what you would use. And so, literally, anything under the sun that accomplished your goal is what you did. Yeah. It was very, and, very creative, very unique and creative. I really enjoyed it a lot. No, and you know, I can hear in your voice with you know how much you enjoyed it back then and putting all these things together. And from from my perspective, watching these, you know, the films and the TV shows, because I was a big fan of Battlestar Galactica, absolutely loved it. Um, and it's another thing I still think there's these guys fighting this battle somewhere out in the universe, you know, far, far away. <laughs> so on top of everything else, but. Um, there was a sense of, uh, I've said this before on my show, there's a sense of magic when things are done practically. Um, so I know you guys see all the tricks in the workshop, but from an audience perspective, I can sort of see that there's like a tangibility when you see the spacecraft and everything. Just everything seems quite real. You know, like you can just see the rivets on the craft and stuff like that. So, um, so I think your 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 passion for trying to make these things in as a special effects artist is seen upon on the screen as well from the audience perspective, and uh, that gets mentioned quite a lot now. You know, um, when when I look back at these old movies. Yeah, people a lot of times don't understand the amount of detail that went in, and mm. and for things that you would never really even see on the screen. Yeah, I mean. You know, we on that shrinking woman, we literally built a 35 foot tall section of gorilla shoulder. Now, Rick Baker played the gorilla Sydney in the oh, movie, which was a real honor for me because wow. that was just before he did American Werewolf, I think. Oh, my like, God. Wow. Really? Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> Rick Boom. Baker. It was Hell. so cool. <laughs> just throw that one in there. <laughs> Oh my God, Vaughn, oh, yeah. I, I can't, even, you know, the directors, I, I, it, it blows me away, the people that I actually worked with and for, and it's just remarkable. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, this 35-foot section of Gorilla Shoulder, it took us three and a half months to build this thing. It was structural steel. It went from about the top of the neck down to the shoulder itself. And it had to fully articulate. So it was structural steel welded together, 
this huge shoulder that had a ram down the middle of it that lifted it up and and swayed it back and forth mm-hmm. and the neck the neck had to turn naturally like an actual neck would go so the the lower rungs of the neck turn slower than the upper rungs because the upper the upper neck actually turns more than the lower part of your neck <laughs> can you believe oh, in this 35 foot tall thing <laughs> and, and then we had to cover it with four-way stretch material and stipple uh, uh, roving fiberglass roving we used as the as the gorilla hair it was mm-hmm. just nasty stuff oh my god shards of fiberglass everywhere in the air it was just nasty and then they sprayed it and they put the collar on around his neck and then lily slips underneath the collar and rides on his shoulder in her reduced form right wow (laughs) so so like i say three and a half months wow of of a 20-man crew working on this thing and it maybe had a minute of screen time that's amazing uh, it's just that just blows me away that does you saying that you know for all, all they went through to try and produce that for these films it's just thousands and thousands of dollars yeah just you know just for that a few seconds of of a close-up of lily squirming in his collar <laughs> running around <laughs> being chased by the cops it was oh amazing. my god really uh, so these um so, from when you turned up in Hollywood to where, where you are now, you know where where you are at this point. That story you just telling me there, I'd imagine that there was a lot of skills that you picked up along the way. So, as you're getting taught by, like the old hands, sort of passing on the torch, that sort of thing, you know. Definitely. Yeah. No doubt about it. It was it was a constant learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, from that first day on airport, I I started learning all the tools and the just everything that you needed to know in effects. And like I said, literally nothing was off limits. So, uh, you know, you had fiberglass people and you had welding people and woodworkers and prop makers and and pyrotechnicians and you know divers. I, I the the one thing that was really cool, I got into position in Jaws 2 because we were so far from Hollywood we were on location yeah uh, there would be times when they needed somebody else they needed an extra set of effects hands and so I had the opportunity to actually upgrade my pay scale and become a prop maker wow. and I got certified as a diver I bought all my equipment and they rented it back from me so I could use it on the set and I worked on the uh, Sea Sled Shark crew. I was actually one of the controllers of the Sea Sled Shark. Oh, wow. And not, not just as a craft serviceman, but as an actual prop maker. So from that point on, I was, I, not only was I the most experienced craft service guy, but I also could be upgraded if in a pinch they needed to have an extra hand, a set of effects hands. and that, and. I even built a small set on on the thing, a, a small corner of the kennel, and I can point to the actual scene where my little corner of kennel was used. <laughs> oh on the man! Film. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what, Von? I, I knew we was going to get to the thing at some point. You just mentioned it, and I'm just like, wow! You know, it just you. You've already blown me away with what you've been involved with already. You know, you've, you've mentioned Rick Baker, Airport 1977, Jaws 2, being involved in Hollywood. Um, 
you know, limousines of Florida, you know, uh, <laughs> diver. You've done a little bit of work on, you know, one of the fighters for, you know, Galactica and stuff. And I was thinking, you know what, it's just like, if I could just do one of those things, it, it would be amazing. And, you know, your story so far on the show is just blowing me away, you know, it's just like, wow. <laughs> It's just, (laughs) holy hell, man. And now, you know, just to sort of put the icing on top of the cake, you're now telling me, you know, you just worked on a little bit of kennel for the thing, which is, you know, let's let's just say this now, you know, the thing, it's probably one of the greatest sci-fi horror films out there. It keeps topping the polls every time someone mentions it. I even spoke to someone the other day who's, sort of in his early 20s, you know, and said, oh, yeah, I watched The Thing the other day. It's great. You know, it's just, this film is just, it's just amazing. And you've worked in it, on, you know, it's like, wow. (laughs) And and when it came out, we were so dejected when it came out and it didn't do the box office. Um, Yeah. You know, to to see here 35, 40 years later Mm -hmm. that it's receiving this critical acclaim that's, Mm second to none is so gratifying it's just so amazing and and i was so honored you know uh, it, it's always been a very political thing to get your name in the screen credits yeah and i know nowadays you have twenty thousand people that all work mm-hmm. cgi and <laughs> yes they get everybody's yeah. name on it <laughs> but if you go back to the early 70s and you look at a screen credit you know you look at jaws screen credit and all they had on jaws oh well, Jaws, I think, was just Bob Maddie. They might have added Joe Alves. But I know right. on Jaws 2, all they had was Roy Arbogast and Bob Maddie were the only two guys that got screen credit for the effects crew. And we had 40 to 50 guys on that crew at times. Oh. So, you know, it used to be, I, I think because in traditional film, putting even a letter, a character on film was painstaking. And so, so, you know, it was directly a matter of cost and how much it would be to put somebody's name at the end of the film. Oh, okay. And that makes sense to me now, you saying that. I never yeah. thought of it like so, that before. So they limited that right. extremely, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, but now, it, it, thank God, by the time the thing came around, they were starting to loosen that up. And that's why I was blessed to have my very first so, screen credit on the thing. Screen credit on the thing. <laughs> um, what a movie to have your screen credit on as well, you oh, know, for the thing. You know I I mean? um, and, and, you know, it's funny, too, because uh, my real name, my birth name is Yervant. Right. And as you know, and, and in the credits of the movie, I used Yervant, and I was really torn by that. Um, I Because all my friends, in fact, when the movie came out and people were looking for my name, they go, I never, I didn't see your D. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yervant. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I kind of kicked myself and, yeah. and I decided at that point in time, if I was ever going to get more screen credit, I would be Von Babison and make sure. And even, as a grip on La Bamba, I'm Von Babison, you know, so and every other screen credit I ever had, it's Von. But now, 40 years later, and I'm getting all this critical acclaim. It's like my family name is now involved with the greatest horror flick yeah. in, in film three. And I'm now so honored that my grandfather and my father and my name is on that film. <laughs> it's it's just 
it, it, it gained a significance to me that I didn't even realize this was happening at the time. And, and it's just so awesome. <laughs> I'm so, so honored and it's a great honor, Von. And you know, I, I cannot see the thing has just gained popularity in the last 10 or 20 years, I would say. Um, it's just gone through the roof. I think people now begin to realize what not only just John Carpenter, but um, is it Dean Cundy was working on the set as well, which we're going to see, and yourself. Yeah what you guys were putting together and I'm so glad it's now got the appreciation that it has got which I mean I love the film from the off when I first watched it you know and I think it's a great um, isolation movie it's got a lot of um, great acting story special effects and it gets you it's a, it's a guessing game as well which which makes it great but going back to so would it been when did you start first start working on the thing was it sort of 81 or um yeah it was 81 it was the summer of 81 uh roy arbogast um Mm. who i had worked with he was uh, one of the foremen on the the on jaws 2 yeah and was also the coordinator on shrinking woman so he was a guy that i had built a relationship with so pretty much every time he came back to the uni lot he would ask me if i wanted to work on what he was doing Mm mm-hmm and so when he came in and said, I'm going to be doing this thing movie, mm-hmm. I just absolutely jumped at the opportunity and uh, and just started working with him. You know, we, we set up shop on 20, stage 27 again in the corner of 27. And uh, that was kind of our base of operations. And then we started working. We, we did the, uh, the famous uh, failed miniature helicopter. <laughs> Oh, sure. <laughs> <See>? right, guy, yeah. <laughs> I always allude to and nobody else wants to admit to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was really such a bad idea. Oh my god. I can't even believe that they did it, that they tried it. But Was that but another apparently... one of those projects you spent many months on trying to do and then they didn't use it or was it a fairly quick process? Yeah, oh definitely. No. Well, it wasn't months though. I think we we worked for about three and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, a hundred degree summer in the back lot and we snowed in a mountainside. Um, we had to make it appear like Antarctica, obviously. And yeah. it had to be high enough on a hill to where with a camera angle would not see anything past the horizon of the, of the snowy mountain. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah, it yeah. had to be it was really high up in the back lot. Uh, the back lot of Universal is, is very, is mountainous. It's in a, a you know series of the hollywood hills there yeah and, and so we were up pretty high and we were just muslim in this freaking hillside and covering it with 100 pound bags of gypsum to make oh, wow. it look like snow <laughs> oh god and feathering in these uh fiberglass rocks from the staff shop that had to make it look you know like antarctica mm-hmm and then, uh, then we set up this huge scaffolding and got the camera crew there and these miniature helicopters. And it just was an absolute nightmare. It, nothing, absolutely nothing went right. Um, they, I've, I've told the story before. The, the, they had three helicopters. I think they were about probably 20 feet long. So, I mean, they were good size, but of course, they were still miniatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... They got the first one ready, and obviously it was the best of the three, and it it was flying around. They were testing it just to see what it looked like in the air, 
was really beautiful. They were coming, they were trying to get down close to the edge and the, the operator got it a little too close and the pylon of the heli the first helicopter hooked the back side of one of the fake rocks. You know, because rocks, fiberglass staff rocks only have to look like a rock from the front. You're well, fooling thought, the yeah. camera. Mm -hmm. From the back, it's a hollow, empty shell that has usually a wooden structure mm -hmm. to hold the fiberglass in place. So this pylon tripped over a rock and crashed. And so that was the end of Helicopter One, and they never even got a camera on it. Oh, wow. So, um, so number two gets ready and and in the in this script in this idea that they had the tail rotor was going to hit a rock okay i guess that's why they were trying to get close to the rocks mm -hmm. and so the tail rotor was supposed to break off which made the helicopter crash so in order to get a consistent break in the tail rotor section of the, these miniature helicopters, we had mounted an explosive squib. And now, uh, you know, those those are set off by electronics, obviously, a, a battery or, or a, a radio signal or something that will activate the squib. Yeah. So the guy is prepping the helicopter on the ground and they get the squib live. And as it's sitting on the ground, the tail rotor blows off. <laughs> Somehow, some kind of radio signal, whatever, something triggered the squib. And so Helicopter 2 died right there before it even spun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So now we're down to number three. And the oh. whole crew, I mean, you know, everybody's sitting there waiting for something to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, so they prep number three and they get it up in the air and it was awful. Oh. Um, it was, you could see that it was sputtering the, the uh, fuel that it ran on. And it was kind of like a weed whipper type of a kerosene mixture type of stuff, you know? Right. And so it, it was coming out of the exhaust, looked awful. It couldn't really uh, fly straight. And, you know, John Carpenter looked at the guy who was, who actually brought the models and he said, you know, what's wrong with this? Right. And he said, well, truthfully, we were really never even supposed to get to the third one. <laughs> so, so he was, he was counting on the success of one and maybe two, but never get to three. But we got to three and it didn't work. And so once they knew it looked like shit, John Carpenter just turned around, looked at everybody down below him on the scaffolding and said, okay, folks, that's a wrap. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, wow. So was this, um, they, was this basically a scene at the beginning of the movie where you got Norway, this one in the uh, Norwegian helicopter? Is this where they just correct. tried to create yes. a bit of suspense right. with that? Oh, okay. All right. So I don't even know how they would have tied that in. It they had to have done a, a script rewrite in order to accommodate the story the way it actually came out. And right. I, obviously, I, I love the way it actually came out, but I can't imagine how they would have ever tied the breaking of the tail rotor. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it baffles me to even try to imagine how they would have worked that in. Oh man, it's a great story, Vaughn. I um, because I know that yeah. John Carpenter didn't he um, 
fly one of the helicopters or do a lot of the helicopter flying for that movie? Was he was he one of the pilots? I'm not sure. If if he did that, he probably did that on the BC location. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go on the location. Right, okay. So that you was the one thing. Yeah. Um so yeah, stage twenty seven. So that's a great story. It, it just amazes me how much gets, like you say, gets made, but then gets cut from the movie and the trolls and errors of you trying to put stuff together, um, right. which are still, you know, just incredible stories to hear. Um, so at the time, obviously, John saying, you know, mentioning John Carpenter, he, I've always thought that John Carpenter was in his heyday right now in the early late seventies, early eighties. You know, success of Halloween. Then he did The Fog, um, or not to forget Assault on Precinct 13, which I'm a massive fan of. It's a great independent movie. Then he did Escape from New York. Was there was there a vibe of working on set thinking, I'm working on a John Carpenter movie? Um, oh, and thinking, yeah. yeah, and thinking, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what was the, <laughs> I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, that's right. <laughs> When when Roy came to me and asked me to be on the crew, it was like, mm. oh my god, yes. Yeah. There was one one other big production at that time on the lot at Universal. It was Cats. Right. And I was I was hoping to get one of the two mm-hmm. uh, because Cats. I, I actually got a chance to at least kind of roam around the sets in the back lot at Cats, and that it was fascinating to me. I really loved that. Yeah. But, um, but I was really happy to be where I was. <laughs> <laughs> To say the least. <laughs> oh man, I, I you know I say you know I'm, I, I'm a big fan of you know John Carpenter's work. I've been for a long time, even when I was quite young as a kid, I just recognised John Carpenter's work and his signature in films and stuff. Um, and obviously, I've heard you mention John Carpenter. I, 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 I imagine you've met him several times on set and things like that. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, not, not that he would necessarily remember me. It, no. it was funny when I went to the Comic-Con in 2018 and I met up with Dean Cundy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was he like looked at me and he was very kind of puzzled and looking. And then I had a picture on the table of me holding the dog, a German Shepherd dog puppet that they used to block right. <laughs> the, the scenes for the kennel. And he picked up the picture and went, oh, I remember that guy. <laughs> so it was very cool. <laughs> oh, man. It's kind of the high point of Comic-Con for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> To be remembered by Dean Cundy. Dean Cundy, I guess I, just a, <laughs> yeah, another amazing guy um, who did, oh. he did some fantastic work, didn't he, for, you know, John Carpenter, you know, some oh, of his for, directional yeah, shots and things like that. Harry. Apollo 13, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, Jurassic Park. He just just phenomenal career, and they even awarded him the Cinematographer's Lifetime Achievement Award, which is no small. No, not so. Honor. No, much well deserved. Um, yeah, no kidding. Did, what a uh, nice guy too. Yeah, no, I've, I've, um, this. Yeah, yeah, really, just a salt of the earth kind of guy. <laughs> a little shout out to uh, Peter Abbott from the Outpost Thirty One group and Todd Cameron, um, who have, you sure. know, they've also mentioned that they've mentioned Dean Cundy and, you know, several other cast members from the thing, and they've just, you know, said, you know, 
great guys you know just and, it, and again yeah. it's nice to hear that you know if and i'm sure it's the same for them as well being involved in yourself to now as i said earlier to have this film now recognized um because i may i'd imagine at the time and i know it, this question goes without asking really but i'd imagine it was probably a bit of a bum deal that this film didn't do very well at the time after everything that went into it i'd imagine yeah it was it, it was really dejecting mm. in fact that was one of the reasons that i kind of left universal oh right um, uh, along with in in an indirect way uh rob botine uh because i was at the time i was working on on the thing i was 28 and here here was rob botine at 23. <laughs> wow <laughs> With yeah. the you know the, the largest makeup effects budget ever in film history, yeah. <laughs> and and I kind of did a little bit of self <laughs> evaluation, saying, "My God, I'm 28. This guy's five years younger than me, and he's like in this position where he's calling the shots. It's his it's his vision that's being made." You know, I said, "I I need to be doing more in my life myself." So. Um, no, I honestly, Vaughn, it sounds like you you was doing a whole ton. <laughs> honestly. Well, I, you know, I you was know. also a musician. You know, I was a bass yeah. player since I was 17 and been in bands all my life. Mm -hmm. So I always had this kind of split personality, and it was very difficult to work in special effects and be in a band. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're working a movie, generally your shortest day is going to be 12 hours. And, you know, I, I remember three and a half months without a day off. I, I remember a 37 hour day. Wow. <laughs> you know, wow. There were, <laughs> when we were on the clock, we were like taking turns trying to take cat naps in side rooms at mm. Heartland. Um, it, it was, uh, it was quite a challenge to remain musically viable <laughs> and still work in special effects. And, you know, so that's, that was a crossroads in my life definitely mm -hmm. no i'm sure yeah and yeah i could imagine that was quite a tough deal also noticeable on the director john carpenter after that time because uh, i think it kind of took a little bit of a slope for him but then obviously he came back again you know with some of his work in the 80s oh, yeah. you know with films which again are getting recognized now such as uh, they live prince of darkness is starting to go up a bit more in the ratings yeah. you know people starting to understand that film but going back to um stage 27 i just want to talk a bit more about the thing um what was going on there what what, what uh, i take it it was a lot of um sets from within outpost 31 that was created and what, what scenes was, were they filming? Yeah, that was actually the main compound mm. was stage 27 yeah the entire link like when you, you see that huge long hallway that that McCready starts lighting up the Molotov cocktails and blowing up room after room. Oh yeah. That's yeah. all real, you know, that was all on the stage. Uh, it was a huge set. Um, you know, all, all the, the whole recreation room, the couch scene and the, the blood test and all that. And Palmer's head split, all that wow. all occurred on stage 27. Um, we did have other places. We had another stage. I think 21 had the, uh, the autopsy scene where they cut open, you know, bring out all the actual entrails. And what we have here is, appears to be regular <laughs> dog. <laughs> 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 That's a good impression that, there. 
That's, that's not a dog, it's an imitation. <laughs> you know, just... The basement, the basement was awesome. That was the most successful, one of the most successful special effects gags I ever worked. Um, where it blows through the floorboards and it chases McCready down the, the lane. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that was like this cart that was on a system of pulleys. It was on a track and had all this cable through these pulleys so it would work extra fast. And it had a ram with what we called the turtle shell, which is a real hard fiberglass shell right. that was painted black. And it, it at, a, at a specific time, they would start the action with the, with the uh, track and then fire the ram and it blew its way through the floorboards which were all balsa wood. They were scored balsa wood that we had placed into place mm -hmm. and locked. So, you know, it all looked all snowed in for some reason. Why, why would snow be in the basement? Hmm, well, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's Hollywood for you, I'm sure, you know. <laughs> you know, you know what, Vaughn? I never actually even thought of that until you mentioned it now. <laughs> it's just like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, and you know that that was the home of another one of those amazing details that was never seen on film. Right. Because I took a couple of pictures of those um, forced perspective tunnels mm -hmm. that they went to great pain creating this, this illusion of these long tunnels that went off in the distance. And they were all, they're called forced perspective. And what happens is the sides and the top and the floor force in and all the the uh, props that go back in the tunnel get smaller and smaller to give you an illusion of depth of distance. Oh, it's really cool. Right. Yeah, okay. I was, I was and they had two tunnels like that, and I took pictures of them just because I had to. I wanted to remember this. <laughs> You're a <Right>. picture <laughs> movie, it, <laughs> movie yeah. magic. The, the lighting was so dark in that tunnel, you never even saw those things. And the, the camera, I don't even think the camera ever goes by either one of those tunnels, which kind of almost broke my heart. <laughs> <laughs> because it was like, wow, there's such detail in this. Even the gauge of the, there's like little lights that hang from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And the lights get smaller as they go back. And the gauge of the wire is smaller <laughs> every time they go from one light to the next. It, it just detail that you would never even imagine would exist in it. It's funny you because, say, it's, I'm really glad you said that though, Vaughn. It's because I've heard it quite a bit now, especially on the Outpost 31 group. As you know, there's people that post stuff on there quite a bit and they say, oh, I've just noticed in the background, you know, on the Petri dish scene that there's a poster. And I think the detail that you're talking about now does get brought up quite a bit because every time I watch the thing, and I've heard a lot of people say this, say, oh, every time I watch it, I noticed something in, different in the background, or I'm starting to notice, um, you know, what you just mentioned, oh, the gauge, you know, in the basement and things like that, which is right. it, it's great. It's, it's, I've never known a film to be so dissected and looked into. It's almost like there's still the mystery is still unfolding today, you know, as, as we as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think with the, with the advent of digital home movies. Hmm. People have been able to frame by frame scrutinize movies. Yeah. They would never have even seen before. Mm. 
like uh, to returning to Jaws 2, the famous scene where Mike is just being pulled into the boat just ahead of the shark. Oh, yeah. Who just scrapes the boat and tries to... Okay, well, uh, apparently in that scene, what happened is they got so close to the boat, the nose of the shark hooked a turnbuckle and a wire on the, the, the rigging of the boat itself. And so it pulls the, the, the mouth at a very unnatural position. Right, okay. And, and if you look at that particular frame as the, the mouth is being distorted, you can also look deep in his throat and you can see one of the rams that controls the, the movement of the shark inside. Right, but okay. <laughs> if you watch the movie in real time, which is how you're supposed to watch movies, mm. you never see that. No. You know, you're you're overcome by the timing of how the shark almost gets Mike, and it's like, oh my god, they just got him out of the water in time. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but now people frame by frame pick the thing apart and go, Oh look, there's a ram down there. How did they miss that? Why did they <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but no, no, no. You're not supposed to watch a movie frame by frame. That's not how you know you're supposed to experience a film. And I'm sure the director didn't really care about that, or he didn't even know about it at the oh, time. Oh man! If <laughs> hey, I just want to say, I'm loving these impressions. By the way, they're great. <laughs> hey, there's a ram down the shark's mouth. Hang on, what's going on there? Oh, no. <laughs> Just watch the film and enjoy it. <laughs> exactly. You know, come on. How is it making you feel? Not, you know, there, I can almost guarantee there will be at least one continuity error in every film you watch. And you would have to really be anal to sit there and pull every single oh, one. Oh, yeah, no, out. yeah, yeah, sure. I'm sure. You know, but there are people who've got nothing better to do than, than do that kind of thing. Yeah. Should we watch the thing? Yeah, but should we watch it frame by frame tonight? I'll just pause every scene, you know, and just... <laughs> yeah, let's do that. I'll go and get some beers in the fridge and some crisps and we'll, we'll, we'll make this a night. <laughs> Brilliant. God, yeah. Oh, man. So, um... It's, yeah, I, I'm still blown away, Yvonne. <laughs> <These>, oh. <laughs> um, going back to stage 27 with the thing. Um, so, was did you get to meet the cast, and did you ever get to see Kurt Russell on set? Or I mean, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely have seen every single one of the mm -hmm. guys. I even had to stand in for Palmer one time. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. Although it wasn't used. Although it wasn't used. <laughs> well, thanks for thinking about it. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have my name right. All right. But um, we, were, we were at Heartland, and they wanted to try some gag. They had made arms that had um, goo. Uh, there was a, a pipe that was running down the center of the arms, and they had stippled like a thousand little holes in these arms mm -hmm. and and at the given cue they would start pumping the ky and it would come out at these little tiny holes the, the arms and it just would look like spaghetti you know goo spaghetti that would come out yeah yeah and they needed they needed a thin tall person to sit in the famous couch wow wouldn't see his head 
and I had to hold my arms back behind me so they had the fake arms come out and and have this goo gag. But apparently when they did it, they didn't like the way it looked, so they never used it. Oh, I see. So it's it's kind of like a let's, let's trial it before we do it type very, thing, is that sort of thing. Very that's... trial and error. I mm. mean, you don't realize how much trial and error that there is on a set of a movie, mm -hmm. uh, especially something like Jaws 2 or The Thing. Because you really don't know 100% how this stuff's going to work. You know, Jaws 2, same thing with Jaws. I mean, uh, Jaws, the, the famous, uh, the shark's not working, or, you know, <laughs> the, the, the quote that they love to keep throwing. And, and, you know, obviously there were problems with the Jaws 2 shark as well, because yeah. you're working in the ocean and you've got different currents every day and, and you have a different set of, of, you know problems to deal with uh every day it's it's amazing when the current changes uh, i have i have an old call sheet from one day that has about well it shows the breakdown for the week but but each day has like five things mm -hmm. because if it rained they'd be in an interior and if it didn't rain then they'd be at you know uh, uh pensacola and if uh, if it was windy, then they'd be, you know, it, it's really crazy to. And if the shark is working, then we'll shoot this. And if the shark's not working, then we'll cover with this. Yeah. <laughs> so we'd have to have like three or four gags all ready to go, depending on what the weather was going to be like that day when we woke up. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. I could imagine it being Seriously? a nightmare. Yeah. I'd, oh, I'd... Crazy. I used to live by the sea myself once upon a time, so I kind of, uh, yeah, working with water, with a shark, with all the mechanics and everything, I could just imagine how that would be. Um, but, oh, it's just, yeah, because I know that obviously um, Spielberg had problems, didn't he, with um, the shark in the first movie, which um, some people say that's what ended up creating the suspense, because I think they were supposed to see the shark more in the first half but then that's kind of what right. so um that's true i'd imagine they sometimes it's it's off. it's like a sort of what i call sometimes a happy accident where when something don't work <laughs> it ends up being something that does work and you didn't plan on it or something like that and i imagine it's probably like that quite a bit in the sort of special effects <laughs> world you know <laughs> and, just... and they'll say and, it, and if it works they'll say that was genius yeah <laughs> it was well, we... kind of accidental <laughs> it was kind of a wing and a prayer you know <laughs> <laughs> a lot like that helicopter at the yeah that's of the it thing. yeah <laughs> if that had worked for some reason then it would have just been oh it all pats on the back and everybody be happy yeah but john carbons would be saying I... good job guys yeah brilliant fantastic <laughs> <laughs> oh. But I've seen effects crews get fired on the spot. Oh wow! The entire effects crew just like get the hell out of here. You won't work in Hollywood again. <laughs> oh my god! Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Oh. I know. I know. It's uh, dog eat dog. That's for sure. So, and of course they will work in Hollywood again. But it yeah. was just the ego of the person doing the firing got in the way. <laughs> I can imagine there's probably some high anxieties on set with the directors with schedules and things like that. I'd imagine which probably quite oh, causes that. Um, did you um, did you manage to pick anything up up along the way in your career with any sort of props or anything like that? Have, have you sort of collected anything no. along the way or? 
No, I think you're, you knew about the child's jacket. That's kind of where I was going from, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just no, said, that, I know you got the child's jacket. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did have a Charlie head for a while. Um, not an animated one, just the actual covering. Right. But because I was, unfortunately, I was kind of unaware of the deterioration of foam latex over time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that, you know, you got to keep it dry and, 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 and uh, air free because it does rot. It, foam latex is a very weird animal. And it, over time, it just rots away. Right. So, um, so the Charlie head is gone. <laughs> I'd imagine it'd but probably I, start stinking as well, would it? After a time, would it make a smell or anything like that? Or... <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, it does kind of smell nasty too, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it changes color. Yeah, it's not, not a nice thing, for sure. <laughs> but the jacket, the yeah. jacket was a different thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it was the last day of shooting. Yeah. It was the last day of shooting for principal photography. And they were going on location to British Columbia virtually the next day or the next week. Yeah. So obviously the last day of principal photography was blowing the place up mm -hmm. because once you blew it up, that was pretty much it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we're sure. not going to be shooting in there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so all you can, we had gas mortars, we had all this stuff, all you could smell in that room stage 27 and it's a huge stage yeah all you could smell was gasoline it's just thick in the air very scary actually <laughs> a lot of those pyrotechnic stuff i i could tell you even more stories but that's another another time maybe um anyway all you can smell is gas we're getting ready to shoot this and i look in the first room they're going to blow up is the entry the, where they go outside and and come back in yeah and and right at that entry door, there are hooks, and they were had like I don't know, maybe five or six jackets all hanging on these hooks around the door, because that's where you know you would get your jacket, you'd put it on, and you'd go outside. So that's yeah. where the jackets were held. So again, you know, I'm looking at these beautiful jackets all hanging on the wall, and all you can smell is gasoline, and we're gonna blow the fuckers up. Oh, yeah. excuse me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 fine. There's no problem. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. we don't have sensors here. Um, so anyway, I'm just thinking, you know what? These guys are gone. This is the end of the principal photography. I'm going to nab one of these jackets. Yeah. Because all it's going to do is burn up anyway. And so I grabbed one and I ended up taking it home and and, you know, I, I never had any nefarious thoughts about it. I just wanted something to have as a as a keepsake, yeah, sure. you know, and yeah. and uh, so here, all of a sudden, 35 years later, <laughs> people are going, well, the thing, the thing, oh, my God, what? you know, I was blown away because this yeah. is again, this is a movie I worked on uh, two lifetimes ago, mm -hmm. you know. And it, it failed at the beginning. Yeah. And so all of a sudden here, now all of a sudden it's heralded as one of the, if not the best horror movie of all time. Yeah, and I yeah. got Child's, and, and I didn't know at the time it was even Child's Jacket. I right. started conversing with people online. Todd Cameron was one of the guys. Uh, there's another crazy guy named Joe Hart. He has ThinkFest. He's, yeah. He was the guy that actually negotiated me going up to the Comic-Con in 2018. Right. Um, 
So through my conversations with those guys, I I looked through the pictures and everything and discovered that I had it was child's jacket I had. Oh. And you know, Joe was like, Oh, well, what you've you've changed the end of the movie. You made Childs wear a different jacket in the final scene. And now there'll be speculation. I thought, no, 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 Joe, come on. That didn't happen. Said, First of all, they hadn't even gone on location yet. So, you know, any self-respecting wardrobe person has at least two, if not three versions yeah. of every principal character's wardrobe. That's mm -hmm. the way you do that, you know? Like, there had to be at least three child's jackets. <laughs> I happened to grab one of them. Uh... Um, so, because, you know, after that, they went to British Columbia, mm -hmm. and Childs is seen in that jacket, at that style jacket, mm -hmm. you know? And that's how I defined that that's what it was. But, like I said... I didn't grab the only one. There's no way because they hadn't even shot the locations, the exteriors on the locations yeah, yeah. and he's seen in the jacket. So, so obviously they had more versions of it. Um, I like the story better where you said that you picked up his jacket and now I could just imagine Keith David coming along five minutes later going, Oh, where's my jacket? He's <laughs> like, oh. I'll have to pick this. I think it's a white jacket he wears in the end, isn't it, or something? He does. He does change his jacket in the end. But yeah, there you go. There you go. Someone's taking my jacket. There you go. You're part of that. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of trivia no, I, there. I that that day, nobody went through and said. <laughs> I don't even think uh, Keith was on set that day. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Obviously, Keith or Kurt was because he was the one lighting the Molotov. I'm trying to think of who is with him as he's descending. Maybe Nalls is Nalls with him at that time. Oh, we're going back onto yeah. the scene now. So what the? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I'll have I to go look at it. <laughs> oh, I should I should know this. I've seen the film so many times. It would have been Nalls. I, I think it might have been Nalls. Yeah, that's I it. think it was. Maybe we were all not war in Norway. So. As I understand, am I right in saying that you said they did actually blow the set up out in BC and they completely demolished that, so all the explosions are, right. um, are real. But I imagine they probably TNT was used and stuff like that to, to completely demolish the place. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And many, many gallons of gasoline. Gasoline. That gives you the real ball of fire, the real rich red ball of fire. We, it was funny. One of the one of the most fun things I did on Jaws two mm. was um, we, we we had wrapped principal photography the day before Christmas uh, in seventy seven. Yeah, seventy seven. Yeah. So the entire crew flew back to L.A. on December twenty fourth. We spent Christmas at home, and six a.m. on December twenty sixth second unit reported back to the hill at universal and we flew back out to florida and worked for another three months wow uh, all second unit stuff so the second unit stuff once we finished everything we had to wrap everything out of there so we had this magazine of a lot of explosives. Oh my God. I don't even know why we had that many explosives. Jeez. There was only that one explosion 
at the well i guess because of the shark burn too so mm -hmm. the, okay that's the second one mm -hmm. and we did shot that twice anyway we had this magazine full of explosives prime accord uh, just an amazing array of explosives mm -hmm. and the florida law is that you can't store the stuff for any amount of time and you can't transport it across state lines right so we sat up my buddy Roger Lipsy, who had the pyro card, and myself sat on the beach with a couple of Florida police officers keeping people away. We blew everything up that was in the magazine. Holy Literally shit. just set everything <laughs> off amazing. on the beach. People were sitting there. They were blown away. Oh, <laughs> we set up these elaborate <laughs> combinations of different explosives and then just blow them all up. It was so fun. Oh, so we yeah. really got to... Like we did explosions with acetone, we did it with gasoline. When you could see all the different ways uh, the fireballs form differently and how yeah, yeah. quick they dissipate and how long, you know, it, it was really so much fun. <laughs> Just blowing it all up. <laughs> That's uh, filmmaking in the 70s for you, I guess, you know. <laughs> Just rock and roll. Like, well, geez. another colossal waste of money. Well, obviously. this is it, yeah. <laughs> Oh I my still have photos. I took a couple of pictures of our explosions. Yeah. It was just fun. I know. <laughs> I know you sent me a picture of the shark with the crew. Um, there's a fire and all that. Uh, at the end of Jaws 2 with a cable and all that. I think I've seen that one. Right. Yeah, that was um, actually the, the, the scene of the, in the film. But I just have these random, I'll have to send you the, the fireball. The, I have one shot that's just like an absolute perfect fireball, right? Taking it at the height of it you can see little pieces of plastic bag in the explosion that held the gasoline because that's wow. what you do yeah, yeah, yeah. you put a, an eight ounce or a 16 ounce what they call a lifter it's a tight wrap black powder bomb at the bottom and then you put a 10 gallon bag of gasoline on top of that and tape a little flash bag that's wired into the the lifter so right. when you blow it the lifter blows all the gasoline into the air and the flash bag ignites the gas as it's turning to fumes. So that's how you get this actual beautiful perfect fireball that forms. Right. It's all it's all wired together and timed to, to work that way. You know, throw it in the air and then ignite it. Is that what they uh, used? Um, was that the cause I know there's a scene with McCready uh, with Palmer, isn't there, when he turns into the thing and he runs outside after the Petri dish scene and he he throws a obviously a stick of dynamite but then there's an explosion I heard that it was that powerful it actually blew him back or something I, I think I read that somewhere uh, yeah and that particular explosion that was actually on location so mm. sadly I wasn't there for that particular explosion yeah I was there for the the body burns we did the body burns three times mm. That was a stuntman by the name of Tony Caesar, I yeah. believe he pronounces it. And he did this this body burn on stage 27. And we had to keep uh, remounting the balsa wood wall that he crashes through. Oh, what? But, um, you know, he would, he had this, uh, an air hose that went up his arm to his mouth mm -hmm. as they sealed him in. And so he's breathing through this air hose until it's time to actually light him up. Right. And so he holds his breath, they yank the hose, they roll cameras and they light him up and 
he flails around for a while. It's amazing how long he goes. I, I was so freaking impressed by him. It was just amazing. But then he, you see him and he wanders through and goes around the corner and then smashes through that wall. Yeah. And that's when they pick it up from the exterior on location and you see McCready come to and light the stick of dynamite and throw it at the body and that's when it blows up. It's very so, close. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. They did had a couple of uh, mistakes. Um, there's a famous story from Heartland too that where the uh, duck monster uh, ignited fumes that were in the air and, and uh, created quite an explosion <laughs> that kind of shocked everybody. <laughs> it wasn't really planned. <laughs> Keep the cameras rolling, guys. There's some great acting going on here. Now, that's just uh, pure fear on our faces. You know, <laughs> shit's gone down big time. <laughs> I, frankly, I'm amazed that there weren't more mistakes or tragedies in special effects because you know i mean i was working at universal when the whole twilight zone came down too and oh I knew really the guys that were oh my god that, you know. oh, was that um, the um was that the combination of joe dante uh is that the yeah the because both was, uh, Bob Bo team was on that film wasn't it? another film that scared the hell out of me as a kid uh the twilight yeah. zone movie wow yeah. <laughs> oh, god, yeah yeah I know, Somewhere. and it's it just you know I know I could see John Landis out there just saying, yeah, bring that helicopter just a little bit lower, get it oh into frame, God. I want to get it all into frame, and that was what happened. Oh <laughs> man, yeah, that was yeah, and that was tragic, wasn't it? Yeah, jeez, oh, awful. You know, they they were on trial for manslaughter, I think. Mm. I'm not sure exactly what the charge was, but yeah, that was big stuff, boy. Yeah, and, uh, I remember reading about that. <laughs> oh. But um, yeah, another, you know, with that tragic scene in that film, which I only found out about a few years ago, to be honest with you. Um, but there are some really good segments in that. I think I, I like the one with the terror at 20,000 feet with uh, John Lithgow again, you know. <laughs> Secured my fear of flying again as a kid. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, you know, all these things, you know. <laughs> Yeah, scared shitless as a kid in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So, Vaughn, there's a question I'm going to have to ask you, and it's thing related. You probably know what it's going to be. Is we get to the end of the movie, two characters left, Mum McCready, one child, both freezing their nuts off and uh, wondering what the hell's going on. Which, what do you reckon, Vaughn? Is it? Can I ask you that question? What do you reckon? <laughs> I, you know, I like to think that they're both human. Right. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Like that. I, I don't, I know a lot of people speculate that Childs was actually the thing. And, mm. and uh, especially because of that jacket question, because people say that he is wearing a different jacket. <laughs> that's and, because of you, Von. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, whatever. Von's got, <laughs> Von took his I jacket. Feel, I still question that, though. It kind of looks like the same jacket, except maybe with, uh, uh, um, snow on it or ice on it yeah it's, okay it, it, yeah. you know anyway whatever <laughs> I, i'd like to think that they defeated it mm. that's that's the way i see it of okay. course it's still it's still frozen though and any any tissue that's left if it comes back to life it'll come back to life so they they still would have the possibility of the thing coming back uh you know i i find it hard to believe that they destroyed every piece of 
thing tissue. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. It's... A petri dish could create a, a you know a creature. Come on. So yeah. any piece of it, if if any, I mean, look at the split face that was left from the Norwegians. Hmm. Wouldn't that have enough viable? DNA to turn into a creature? I, I would think so. It certainly makes it, well, I'd say it's more than plausible whilst we're on that subject because, um, yeah, like I say, when he's when he does the Petri dish, all, the tiny little bits of blood of the thing is where yeah. McCready says, you know, each bit of tissue has a mind of its own, basically, doesn't it? And that's what he's worked out. So, yeah, it's certainly plausible. You'd have to go around and literally get rid of everything, wouldn't you? Um, that's right. But yeah, I, I like the way that the other thing I like with the thing is that this thing has travelled probably thousands of miles from some other galaxy. It's been in the ice for two hundred thousand years, and what ultimately defeats is it is a was it a bit of like Chevron gasoline? <laughs> I can, <laughs> and that's going to take you out, Mister Thing. You know what I mean? You know, it doesn't matter how far away you've come from, mate. That's it. A bit of flamethrower, a bit of gasoline. You're dead. <laughs> I can. Oh dear! Finally, a good byproduct from petroleum. Well, this is it. Yeah, this is a good advert, isn't it? Yeah, it's been destroying. <laughs> been uh, destroying, uh, simulating creatures for thousands of years. That's a good advert, isn't it, for fuel? <laughs> oh man! Yeah, no. It's. Um, I think for me, for the end of the thing, it's. I like what what you said there. You know, you think it could be. Both of them could be human. Some people say it's Mac. Some people say it's Childs. But I think ultimately, I think that's what really does bookend the film nicely, where it's kind of left open and people can kind of leave it to their own minds, you know. And I think that's kind of what makes the film a success today, is that it just keeps it a mystery, you know, which is great. Well, art art is art for interpretation. Everybody sees art differently, mm. and and that is a beautiful thing in art. Yeah. And, and the, the more speculation, the more questions there are, I think the more impactful that art is. Yeah. And uh, you know, again, it, it, people were just uh, they they always blame ET, <laughs> but um, it's a rough people deal. Were just a little <laughs> overwhelmed when it first came out. Mm. I just don't think that. that you know, I don't know. Timing is so important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that like they say, that a little feel-good alien with Drew Barrymore was just too hard to overcome. But, uh, yeah. but later on, yeah. people understood. I guess, I, I mean, I, I guess I can probably see it from that perspective at that time. Um, it could have, if you did a role reversal, say, if, if the thing came out in 1979 and replaced Alien... An alien came out in 1982. Could alien have possibly flopped because of ET? I'm just putting that one out there. Do you know what I mean? You just don't know, dear. It's just like you say. It's possibly timing. You just, yeah, but, but, um, it's almost like it got there eventually. You know, <laughs> down the line, because I think people probably talk more about the thing. Um, sort of in the popular horror genre culture than they do E.T. I'm not saying E.T. is a bad movie, it's a good film, but... Oh, no, yeah, uh, exactly. Do you know yeah, what I mean? E. The f- it's sure. just, the things just seem to have just overtaken. It's, it's like the old, there's the story, the hare and the tortoise, you know. It's, <laughs> it's, you know. <laughs> 
So I guess there was a turtle shell in the thing as you mentioned earlier, but there you go. <laughs> 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 it's all time there. Oh dear. Um so incredible career here, you know, with Hollywood Vaughn, but I know that um you've mentioned that you was in a band in the eighties. I know you sent me some videos. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll bring that up. If, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, it was called Uranus. <laughs> oh, that's where it came from. <laughs> I swear to God. And believe it or not, I can't even, this is too funny. Well, when I left Universal, I, I was in a band. Mm. We were getting ready to record an album. And um, uh, this small record label had a music video production company. Yeah. And so I laid out storyboards for a music video for my band and the record label president just came unglued said, Oh my God, this is the most professional thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to hire you. So that, that was another deciding t fact that made me leave universal. I thought, okay, I'm going to be a big production manager, director of music videos, and I'm going to have this album. Yeah. We did. We, we, believe it or not, we, shot the music video at at Indian Dunes, which is where the Twilight Zone tragedy happened. Oh, right. But they okay. had some sets that they had built for Escape from New York. I swear, I You're kid you kidding not. kidding me. Wow. And we we shot on them. <laughs> <laughs> the, song, the song was called Lonely Street Fighter, and there was this little New York street that was in the middle of Indian Dunes, and we freaking shot there it was so cool <laughs> and that's and, so there's and, six degrees of separation for you <laughs> and let me get that right you just said that's that's what they use for escape from new york you know the set it was yeah it was Part the set it. that they had built at this this indian dunes indian dunes was an area that was really built for motorbikes um uh you know uh dirt bikes and and people rode their bikes out there it was a little past it's north past uh, Magic Mountain hmm. above Los Angeles. And so we used to shoot out there all the time. Oh my God, there was all kinds of productions that there was a, a river that went through there and you've seen that on a hundred TV shows. Um, all kinds of productions shot there. And so one day I was there and I saw that and I, I saw that set that was there and I went, oh my God. That would be perfect for my video. Ideal, yeah, <laughs> ideal for my rock band. Oh. And yeah, and so I I went ahead and and we ended up with that music video. We got a record deal in Europe. Mm. Uh, it was it, it was called Uranus Maiden Voyage, mm. and it was released on Zix Metal in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and the Benelux countries. <laughs> I, that was the first time I'd ever heard of the Benelux countries. <laughs> Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> you so, learn something um, new every day, Vaughn. Yeah, I'm sorry. telling you. you know, yeah. it, was, it was very interesting. Mm. So, yeah. So, I, I started doing music videos. And, and I was actually, I had one that was nominated for an independent award at the second MTV Billboard Music Conference in 1984. Um, but nothing ever happened. And music video was, wasn't something that they made money on. 
Um, for some reason, it was free. MTV was kind of built off of the ability to show music videos for free. They were pretty much strictly promotional. Mm -hmm. um, so there wasn't really a, a, a it wasn't a way to make a living. It was only a way to make a name if you were successful at it. Right. You know, I think uh, we were we were up against uh, the Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun by Julie Brown, mm -hmm. and um, I think the Untouchables were the ones that actually won that award that year. Uh, oh, they. Right. Herbie Hancock for Rocket won the the big award, the, the main award. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a time frame. Do you remember the rocket video from Herbie Hancock? No, but uh, you mentioned the Untouchables. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm figuring they were they were in another indie band at that time, right? Um, so so we were up against them, and like I said, their their video won. So uh, and it was a good song too. That that was another thing is it, it wasn't my group's video that got nominated. Uh, it was a, a video I had produced for another act in the on the label and the song really sucked oh my god <laughs> right, okay. the visual was much better than the song itself. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> there was um there's a song that you sent me the other day was it never surrender and yeah. I think you said you was part was it the RH factor band was it was that was, that that was yeah that was my second uh, original group that mm. after I got out of Uranus <laughs> he got out of um, Uranus yeah, right okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, I formed a band called the RH Factor and mm. it, it was uh, Robert Howell that's where the RH comes from mm. was also the RH Factor was a song my dad wrote back in the 50s so there was a, a lot of tie-in to that name and, and uh, we we recorded a couple of albums independently, released them independently. Nothing really ever came of it. But in the time period that I was with this group, I decided that I wanted to further my knowledge of film. So I actually took a little film class and it was taught by this guy named Tom Palmer Jr. Thomas Palmer Jr. Mm -hmm. And he was okay. He was an interesting guy. I learned quite a bit from him. but. After the, the, the class was done, about six months later, he got an opportunity to be a first-time director for a movie. And uh, the producer owned a home in North Hollywood where the film was primarily shot. About 80% of the film was shot in that home. Um, and because I knew the director, you know, it's like, oh, Vaughn, can you do the effects? Can you do the Foley? Can you do the sound effects? Can you do this and that? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'd love to do all that. Uh, do you have anyone to do the soundtrack yet? No. So what? I, and it turned out that Keith Coogan, who's the male star yes. in the movie. Yeah. I think uh, I know he is. Yeah. yeah from uh, ba Ed Babysitter. Adventures in Babysitting. Is what? that the right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. In right. Yeah. Mm. So, so his character in the film is a music video producer. Right. Uh, so he, we are the band that ends up appearing in the film and actually has the music video shot during the film. And <laughs> right, okay. so as, as a result, we, we gave them featured songs. Uh, we did the entire uh, 
soundtrack, all the background music for the entire film. Um, they ended up taking it to the Cannes Film Festival and got the worst review I've ever read from Variety about a film. Oh, no way. Oh. was awful. Oh, my God. And we thought, we really thought that this was stuff because Diane Ladd was in the cast in a principal part. Sean Young was in it, Sally Kirkland, a couple other people. Um, but at the time we were shooting this film, Diane Ladd was up for an Academy Award for her role in Ramblin' Rose. Hmm. And Laura Dern was also nominated. So it was the first time a mother-daughter team had been nominated for Academy Awards for the same film. And so we thought with all that extra attention to Diane that yeah. this movie was going to be through the roof. <laughs> it was not. <It's... laughs> I don't think it ever released in the theaters. I think it went directly to video. And I don't think they've ever remastered onto DVD. So I think the videotape is as far as it ever went. Yeah, because I, I, I haven't heard of it. Um, but I've heard of the, the actors in the movie or the actresses, uh, Keith Coogan, as you mentioned. And I could probably sure. see that from, from your perspective at the time as well, you know. Like thinking, well, you know, you've got some, you know, you've got some names here. First time director, and you think this might just have a shot. And right. I'm sure, I've, I think I messaged you about this the other day, I'm sure it must be very frustrating where you you are creating something and you're putting all this work into it and you're thinking, I'm thinking we've got something good here. And then it gets released and then it doesn't. Which is, <laughs> kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, isn't it? With, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing, isn't it? You know, I'm sure all you guys were thinking, wow, why does this film not work? You know, because <laughs> it's... We've done everything that we think the audience would like. And I'm sure that must be one of the frustrations in Hollywood itself as well. I, I imagine with filmmaking and um, trying to pull this effort in. And like you said, you know, you're spending three months trying to sort of create a one minute scene and stuff like that. It's just like, yeah, it's you know, trolls and tribulations. Back, I imagine. To the, back to the shrinking woman there. Yeah. I don't know if you were aware of this, but that was uh, Joel Schumacher's directorial debut. How was it? Oh, um, the director yes. of the Lost Boys, wasn't it? Um, which is Lost Boys and a couple of Batman's. Um, yes, a couple of Batman's cool. in there. <laughs> um, yeah. My co-host Dan Bone would be pleased with that. Actually, <laughs> he's, a, he's a fan of those movies. <laughs> well, yeah, Joel. Joel made quite a name for himself, but mm. boy, I'll tell you, Shirley Woman didn't do very well oh. in the box office. <laughs> And we didn't really expect it to necessarily. We didn't have the same feeling that we had from the thing mm. with uh, with Shrinking Woman. Although it was still, it was fun. It was a very fun, probably the most fun set I've ever worked on. Well, because um, Lily just a crack up, and Ned Beatty was hilarious, and oh my god, there it was. It was a funny, a, a funny crew. So what time of year was that? Did you say was, was that around about 1984? Was it? that time no no that's earlier that's probably 79 oh right okay yeah so it was oh yeah of course yeah thing. oh yeah yeah that's right yeah. so i skim mixed up with the the other film with keith coogan in it they used to talk right. about yeah that um, that was actually much later that was probably done in 90 oh 1990 right released on video in 92 mm -hmm. so um yeah so we were kind of 
you know, we're we're an '80s band, but it was still kind of a layover in the early '90s. <laughs> yeah, I, I must admit, because when I listened to that song, uh, the the Never Surrender song, which is uh, if it's okay with you, if I if I could play on the show um, nice. at the end, um, please, I'll do that as I'll do that as the outro because I listened to it. I thought, you know, that's 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 a that's a decent song, Von. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's it's a it's a well, proper I... '80s rock song. Um, I think uh, my other uh, friend and podcaster Ricky Morgan would appreciate this song as well because he's well into sort of 80s rock and stuff like that so yeah Rob Rob Howell the guitar player was kind of a protege of Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush Mm. Um, as a matter of fact uh, the drummer Dave Good has toured and recorded with Frank for a number of years Mm -hmm. as well Um, and I stayed with Dave from the RH Factor, after that, the demise of the RH Factor, I went into another band called On Off On. Right. And uh, Dave was still the drummer, and and we we did some very interesting stuff. I'd made some headway. It, it never got a hit song or anything, but we won all kinds of awards and great reviews and stuff for it. But you know, such is life. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, Von? I, I what you told me, you know, about your I want to call it an adventure, you know. It, it it's a, it's an amazing story, and you know, just it's just blowing me out of water for you to turn up in Hollywood as like twenty one years old, and then to go f- through everything that you've been through, being involved with the films, you know, Airport seventy seven, the TV work, the thing, Jaws two, um, they are for me staples of like what. <laughs> of stuff that's getting made today so you know films probably try to capture that magic now does that sort of make sense you know what i mean you you watch stuff and you know you watch oh, films yeah. and some people come out and say oh they're trying to sort of recreate the thing or and you it goes without saying you know how many shark movies are out there now <laughs> you've got some incredible Sharknado. yeah oh, God. yeah you know Shark to person again, uh, you know, my friend Dan, he's he's all over that, you know, he's it's you know, did did Jaws leave a legacy? Yeah, I guess it did. (laughs) I think so, yeah. Just just like, well, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jaws. I mean, I still, you know, I, I love Jaws too, and of course, I love working on it. I can't can't trade those memories for anything but, no no exactly but yeah. one was just so great mm-hmm. so dreyfus and shaw and scheider together were just mad they were magic and yeah, yeah pro- probably spielberg had a lot to do with that too but mm-hmm. i just think that those guys the chemistry of those guys yeah was unmatched in any other jaws movie uh-huh um, two, you know, two was okay. Had the kids and all that stuff, and Lorraine Gary and Murray Hamilton, they were all great. Mm-hmm. But it, it just didn't have that same gut. Shaw was so killer. Oh man, the SS Indianapolis story and all that stuff. Yeah, was just so, yeah. just so wonderful, man. That's that's movie making to me. You know, so I was a huge fan before I even stepped foot on the universe a lot. I was still in college when that movie came out. Mm-hmm. So um, so when I did go and then I got the opportunity to work on Jaws 2, it was, I, I was just a kid. No, I could story. imagine. I could imagine. I just, oh, yeah, just, yeah. And the other thing I was going to ask one, so 
Um, another question I was going to ask you was, um, was there a film, just going back before the 70s when you was growing up, was there a film that kind of was a big deal for you growing up that possibly inspired you to go to Hollywood, something that kind of stood out? You know, I was so inundated by what my dad and my grandfather had done. Mm. Um, so, you know, my, my grandfather, one of his first successes was a movie called My Man Godfrey. Right. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but it's a legendary movie. And it was, I, I'm pretty sure it won Best Picture for its year back in like 36 or something. Right long long time ago anyway just just wonderful mm -hmm. and so i i grew up a lot on seeing their stuff you know my dad was in a movie with with danny Kaye and virginia mayo called a song is born right um and and it it, it talks about the history of jazz like this danny k plays a music professor and they're writing a history of of music and they discover jazz and so they go out and hand pick all these these wonderful musicians to bring back to the conservatory mm -hmm. and it's louis armstrong and charlie barnett and tommy dorsey and benny goodman and uh, you know just this huge array of amazing jazz players and dad at the time was benny goodman's bass player right and ben Benny actually got a part in the film. He wasn't just one of the musicians. He played one of the professors in the conservatory. Mm -hmm. So Benny had the clout. And there was always this, this rivalry between Tommy Dorsey and Benny Goodman because, you know, each one thought that they were better than the other, pretty much. And Benny won because since Benny had the, the role, he had more clout. And so it was his rhythm section. Uh, Mel Powell on piano, my dad on bass, uh, Louis Belson on drums and Al Hendrickson on guitar. Those four guys were the rhythm section of Benny's band at that time. Yeah. So they got to be in the movie, which was big stuff, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was a movie that I saw constantly growing yeah. up. Um, and believe it or not, you know who directed it? Howard Hawks. Really? <laughs> <laughs> who directed the original oh, the thing. thing. Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, degrees of separation, my friend. <laughs> it's almost like you could say there's almost some sort of fight going on there, isn't there, really? Um, oh, my God. Yeah. And, and my grandfather, completely unbeknownst to everybody else, was the film editor on the Benny Goodman story, starring Steve Allen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's my dad who played for Benny. Here's my grandfather who <laughs> film edited the Benny Goodman story. All these different crossovers of all it's you know. Which, so that that was huge influence in my life was was just them and what they did. Yeah. And you know. Yeah, no, that's, that's I'm very interested to sort of hear those types of stories because I think stuff like that does have an influence on you later on to go and say, yeah. I'm doing that because of this, and it's great to hear those stories as well, um, which is fantastic. And the little Howard Hawks connection there, I was going to say, it must have been weird as well, where I'd imagine you probably watched The Thing, you know, the old black and white one, which again is a great film, it's got a lot of suspense to it, and to then to be thinking, now I'm working on, you know, the remake, you know, in 82. Um, 
awe-inspiring, my friend. Yeah. Well, Fon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and having you on the show. And I, 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 you can hear in my voice, I'm actually blown away by the stories that you told me because, you know, I'm a massive fan of everything. You know, the TV shows, The Thing, Jaws 2, Airport 77, you know, the I've said it about three times on the show. They're films I've grown up with and iconic TV shows. Um, so thank you very much for coming on and telling me these stories. It's been an absolute really pleasure. I've had an absolute ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there are things we didn't even touch on too. So maybe we can have another another go at this sometime. <laughs> yeah, we could have a um, we could certainly have a part two, Von. Be be happy to have you back on the show again. You know, my absolute pleasure. So thank you very much. Well, again, thank you for having me. I no. really appreciate it. Okay then, guys. Well, um, hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did because it's been a great one. And I'm going to close the show now. And uh, just a little bit of admin for the show. I'm a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Um, so you can find the show on there. And you can also find the show on iTunes, Spotify, and several other players on on the internet if you uh, type in Bite Size Cinema Podcast you'll be able to find the show so um, I'm going to close the show with uh, one of Von's songs from the RH Factor band Never Surrender so as always keep it bite size keep it safe and I'll see you soon
If you enjoyed this show, then make sure you check out the other great shows on the Legion Podcast Network, like Cinema PsyOps, Cinema Beef, Devour the Podcasts, Duncan and Bo Come Correct, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Friday the 13th, Get Slayed, The Hell Ming Power Hour, Hello, This is the Doom Show, Hero Hero Ghost Show, Kill the Cast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Mental Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick 6 Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho-Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Which Versus the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.